Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. I'm operating with quite a reduced team today. So joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is senior media reporter Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Mumbrella's Josie Tutty will be talking to General Manager of Spinach, Ben Willey, about dealing with a drop in ad spend. You know, we're going into a year that's going to be very, very tough for the ad market. The reality of running a full-service agency. There is a misguided perception out there that you just put some media people and some creative people (laughs) and some digital people in a room together and it's all beer and Skittles. And what it really means to be part of a global holding group like WPP. So we can tap into the network for things that we think we need and things that our clients value. And we can perhaps uh, stay away from the other things that uh, we don't think add any value to our client. But first, the week's topics. The Nine and News Corp marriage is over. The Bill Shorten and News Corp divorce worsens. And Rugby Australia is in crisis. So this week saw Your Money, which was a joint venture between Nine and News Corp and entailed a television channel on one of Nine's multi-channels and one of Foxtel's channels, wrap up completely. So we had spoken about this on a previous Mumbrella cast where originally just the digital operations, so the accompanying website and news and videos would be shut down. And at the time, I know that uh, my boss and indeed your boss, Hannah, Tim Burrows, thought that perhaps we overplayed the significance of that news. And his view was very much that it's just a website. TV channels can operate without websites. It's not a big deal. I know that you and I disagreed with Tim and agreed with each other that it was indicative of bigger things to come. And indeed, It's now been announced that the TV channel will cease going to air. I think it's on Friday the 17th of May, if my calendar memory is correct. So if you're listening to that before then, get in now to watch some Your Money goodness. Otherwise, I'll be very interested to see what takes its place. Now, Nine are very insistent in particular that it's not to do with the fact that they then got into bed with News Corp's biggest rival by purchasing Fairfax, even though that all happened at a very similar time last year. Instead, they say the revenue model of your money wasn't sustainable, it couldn't be fixed in the short term, so the best thing to do is just shut it down. To me, that's an interesting sort of attempt at a get-out-of-jail-free card. Don't worry, it's not because of the Fairfax thing. Don't mention Fairfax, it's not that. It's because our revenue model didn't work, which from two of Australia's biggest media companies to me seems like a bit of a problem, that they came up with this big idea, spruced it, it couldn't even last a year. But, oh, don't worry, it's not because of one of the biggest media mergers in the country's history, it's because we couldn't make money from it. Do you think that's why it shut down? And is that a is that a good enough – I mean, it's, it's a good enough reason. I guess it's a totally valid reason to shut something down. But do you see what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying. Um, and I think this will probably make me sound incredibly naive. But as much as I do think <laughs> Nine are often very quick to say, don't blame Fairfax, um, I think in this case it 
wasn't commercially viable. And I've said on the podcast before, I did work at Sky Business for a time just before it became your money. And when the announcement was made, um, I'm sure a lot of people shared the shock with me that nine were, or nine and New Scorp were even attempting this venture. Um, and it comes as absolutely no surprise to me that it completely failed because the the audience wasn't there. Um, it wasn't a successful product beforehand. And the fact that they uh, tried to turn it into one, especially if they were planning to do that in the short term, I mean, maybe if they had the funds to give it a bit of love over a bit of time, it might have got there. But I think in the short term, there was just no chance. And so to me, for them to say, look, in the short term, we couldn't turn it around commercially. Yeah, <laughs> you sure couldn't. <laughs> I mean, we didn't get to see the ratings numbers uh it wasn't included in the wrap-ups that we get either from Oztam, which looks, which we look at for the free-to-air stuff, or in the subscription TV stuff where we get to look at the Foxtel numbers. So in terms of how it was tracking audience-wise, I genuinely don't know what sort of numbers we were looking at. But it obviously couldn't attract the commercial dollars that it needed to survive, which is interesting because Nine at the moment, you know, on its primary channel and its multi-channels is incredibly good at attracting commercial dollars. It's really turned things around in recent years. So I'm not sure what what went wrong for them. Maybe it's because the audiences weren't there. I can't say because, as I said, I, I haven't seen the numbers. Um, yeah, I have seen some numbers from back in the Skybiz days, but I don't know whether that, you know, that's complete speculation that they would be the same as the Your Money figures. However, I think um, the concern here is saying nine is great at attracting commercial investment, which they definitely are. Um, does that directly correlate into your money investment? I don't know. Because you look at what nine is attracting commercial input for, it's not <laughs> daytime business television. So, you know, maybe the product was just too difficult for them to sell. And Crikey is speculating that it means 30 jobs will go across the joint venture. And as always with redundancies and restructures, the official line being peddled at the moment is that people will be redeployed if and when they can be within the two organisations. But there is still obviously also the question of what will go to air on these channels. So as you mentioned, Hannah, on the subscription television side of things, it used to be Sky Business and on the free-to-air nine side of things, it was a free-to-air shopping channel. There has been speculation that the respective companies will just revert to that content. True or false? Well, I, so I spoke with nine and their line at the moment is they're not sure what's going to replace that. Um, but I personally would not be surprised if they did just revert back to shopping. Um, I think on the other side of things, if – um, I believe Crikey was quoting a Sky News spokesperson with that no news about 30 redundancies. And if 30 redundancies is correct, the fact that they could then just go back to Skybiz is completely impossible. So I would be incredibly surprised if Skybiz comes back. And also Skybiz wasn't commercially viable before it became your money and it won't be afterwards. So <laughs> Fighting words from a former <laughs> Sky Business employee. But up next, another divorce for News Corp. So in another example of News Corp becoming the news itself, Prime Ministerial hopeful Bill Shorten has again hit out at one of the country's biggest publishers and said it's a new low for Sydney's 
the Daily Telegraph. So a few weeks back, Bill Shorten hit out at News Corp for what he said was biased coverage and scare campaigns. And it was seen as quite a an unusual move in that normally leaders from both sides of politics, no matter what their personal views are of the Rupert Murdoch agenda or the News Corp agenda, do try and play nice with all of the media in the hopes of winning over the media and therefore apparently winning over voters. Bill Shorten wasn't playing that game and felt like the dissection of his climate policy costings wasn't fair and just the general cheerleading of the Scott Morrison government wasn't representative of what was actually happening. He ramped up that war this week when he went on ABC's Q&A program and spoke about his mother. So he talked about sort of her working class roots, I guess, and how difficult it was for her because she wanted to be a lawyer, but because of family circumstances, societal structures and whatnot, she ended up becoming a teacher. It was quite an emotional moment and some media outlets were saying it was a turning point for Bill in the campaign who has, in many people's eyes, struggled to be a relatable person. The Daily Telegraph then ran a cover on the 8th of May uh, called Mother of Invention and it said, revealed Shorten's heartfelt tale, missing vital facts. So the Daily Telegraph alleged that Shorten was playing fast and loose with facts and failed to mention that his mother had actually become a lawyer later in life and I guess painted a picture of him as someone who was manipulating the public into believing an image of him that wasn't accurate in an attempt to make him more relatable and and more real. Shorten then had a very emotional press conference where the Sydney Morning Herald said he was close to tears, but I I would say he was actually in tears because I could see the liquid, so I don't know where one draws the line between almost in tears and actually in (laughs) tears. Um, And he said it was a new low for the Daily Telegraph and hit out at the gotcha shit of the News Corp press. And the war has sort of escalated from there, a war of words, Bill thinks that the Telegraph is being fast and loose with the facts and the Telegraph thinks the same. You know, it's everyone sort of slinging the same accusations at each other. Hannah, it is very unusual for someone who wants to occupy this office to pick a media outlet and be critical of it. The speculation now is that the News Corp agenda, for want of a better word, against Bill Shorten will only get worse. Do you think that's going to happen? Um, I'm not sure whether that's going to happen. I do agree with you that um, it is surprising that he decided to go against them. Um, Quite often, you know, they can kind of run whatever they want and nobody touches it because, as you say, it usually just makes the situation worse. Um, I think it's important to remember here, and I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit, but Andrew Bolt, um, who is not usually known for being the most level-headed person, um, made a really good point here, actually. Um, Probably the first time you'll ever hear me say that. (laughs) First and last. First and last. Um, He made a point that just because one paper runs a headline doesn't necessarily mean the entire media organization believes what that paper has run. Papers obviously have their own editors. They have their own, you know, writers. Um, And I kind of agree with him in this. Like, I agree that maybe Bill Shorten taking on the Daily Telegraph in this manner doesn't necessarily mean he's taking on News Corp as an entire entity. Um, and maybe he also believes that himself, although it is a little bit naive to think that you can get away with attacking one of their biggest 
publications and not have that, that not having a wider effect. Yes. So Andrew Bolt is himself a columnist for the daily papers across News Corp, uh, but he cites Melbourne's The Herald Sun as his actual employer. And he said that the Herald Sun had chosen not to run this article. So in Sydney, the Daily Telegraph had it splashed on the front page. They then had a double-page spread dedicated to it and an editorial dedicated to it as well. Whereas Bolt pointed out that in Melbourne, the Daily Telegraph's sister publication, the Herald Sun, didn't run with it. And he agrees with the Herald Sun's decision to do so because he said that his issue with Bill Shorten is not Bill Shorten the man, it's the policies which he espouses. So he actually said he finds Bill Shorten, I think, more personable than he was expecting, which is actually something I've heard about Bolt himself before and debated (laughs) on this podcast about whether or not someone's character and their television persona is something that we should bother distinguishing between. But it was interesting that Bolt, who's definitely not a Shorten supporter, was in this case sort of on Shorten's side, but I don't know if he really was or if he was using it as a chance to push back against the narrative that News Corp has an anti-Shorten agenda because Andrew Bolt himself wrote a column which I noted had very big prominence on the Herald Sun's website and very low prominence on the Daily Telegraph's website, which I guess again shows different editors get to give different prominence to the stories that they believe fit the day. But Bolt said that there is a tendency to assume that there is a Murdoch media campaign and this is indicative that there isn't. So I'm not sure if Andrew Bolt is actually on Shorten's side or if he just saw an opportunity to say, look, there is no Murdoch media agenda because he thought that this might be might be a good example of it. But, Hannah, do you think this will hurt or help Shorten's chances on the 18th of May? Um, I suspect it will do neither. Um, I, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to say this in without appearing like I'm coming in swinging the axe, but um, I think the Daily Telegraph has perhaps um, in, by making itself regularly, the news has perhaps slipped a little bit um, and is no longer the trusted publication. It maybe was at one time. Um, and so to be honest, I think they can run whatever aggressive headlines they like and people can respond to them. And I think for the general public, that's just, you know, people will just look at that and be like, yep, someone taking on the Daily Telegraph. I don't think it's like if he had taken on, oh God, I don't know, the Guardian or the Australian or perhaps a publication that had a little bit more behind it. Um, I think maybe if that had happened, it would have been a bit of a big deal. But I think in this case, people are pretty much accepting that the Daily Telegraph will run really dramatic headlines and people will be mad about that. All right. Up next, can Rugby Australia's brand ever recover? So this week, if people aren't talking about News Corp or Bill Shorten, they are talking about Israel Falau. Now, I think everything that can be said about Israel and his religious views and his right to express them and his contract, I think most of it has probably been said. Interestingly, though, we got an opinion piece this week from Patrick Southam, who focused more on the Rugby Australia brand rather than the brand of Israel Falau and the damage that this whole 
debacle could do to Rugby Australia. Now, Rugby Australia is already suffering from poor attendance, low ratings and disengaged fans. It is, I'm not a rugby fan, but I have read a lot about how they are struggling in the sporting landscape just with getting the numbers that they used to and getting the engagement that they used to and keeping the game at top of mind for people's agendas. And now it's at top of mind for, you know, obviously the wrong reasons, no matter which side of the fence you sit on with free speech. And indeed, Israel Folau's right to post religious slash homophobic things on Instagram, it wouldn't be what rugby fans want people to be talking about in relation to the game. Nobody, it feels like nobody's a winner here. Uh, So Patrick said that basically by dilly-dallying around and allowing this controversy to drag out for so long after Israel posted that picture to Instagram has just irreparably damaged the Rugby Australia brand and it can't bounce back and he sort of painted it very much as a a lose-lose now because Israel Folau is bad for the image of the brand as an inclusive one, but to sack him, according to Patrick, would also cause problems. So, Hannah, if you were if you were in charge of Rugby Australia, and and wanted your priority was to protect the brand, what what do you think you would do? Who's to say I'm not? Um, I. Uh, yeah, so I do kind of disagree with this piece overall, um, or respect Patrick, obviously, but I do agree that he, with his point that, uh, rugby Australia has waited too long on this. I think they should have acted quickly, um, and got it out of the way. And also they've just given everyone a chance to talk about it and they've given a chance for more column inches and they've given a chance for it to become part of the massive conversation around it. Um, but I think it would be a mistake for them to keep Israel Folau. I think um, we're seeing sponsors dropping him now. We're seeing other brands decide he's obviously not aligning with their beliefs. Um, I think for Rugby Australia to then turn around and give him what isn't even a second chance, he's done this before, this isn't the first time, um, I think is probably a mistake. And I also think um, as part of where we're sitting in the wider landscape of sport and in the wider landscape of scandal, um, the public have less time for scandals it's not like you know back in the heyday of sports when sporting legends were kind of untouchable and they could get away with doing whatever they wanted it's we're not in that place anymore um and i think especially if rugby australia are trying to push itself as a family friendly brand i think they need to clap down on this sort of thing and again at the end of the day it was a breach of contract so asics has dumped falau as a brand ambassador the, the sportswear brand asics and I know that a lot has been said about the fact that Qantas sponsors the national rugby team, the Wallabies. And look, again, as you said, column inches have been taken up by this already about whether Alan Joyce, who heads up Qantas, is having too much influence here as a sponsor of a team should someone's personal circumstances in that Alan Joyce is well known to be gay and so therefore people start drawing all sorts of long bows. Well, Alan Joyce is gay. Israel Folau has said something anti-gay. Qantas sponsors the Wallabies. That's why this is happening. And they make it quite a simple corporate debate when it's obviously much more nuanced and, and complex and than that. But what about the point, Hannah, that, that Patrick made in this opinion piece that getting rid of him is is just as problematic for the brand in that, there are other players on 
within the game that that support Falau's views. And so where do you draw the line as a brand? Um, Yeah, I obviously agree with that. I'm sure there are other players who support his views. Um, But then there are also going to be other players that don't support his views. So if you're going to stand there and say, well, we can't get rid of him because there are players that support his views, are you also then going to stand there and say that other players' opinions don't matter? I think what they've made the mistake of doing, what Rugby Australia have made the mistake of doing is allowing this to become this sort of debate, allowing it to become a debate about, I don't know, morals and ethics and religious beliefs and all the rest of it when they should have just stamped down at the very beginning and said contractually he's obligated to not do stuff like this on social media and then they could have, you know, gotten rid of him then and it wouldn't have become this debate or if it would have, it would have been a lot quieter. I guess the other interesting point that emerges that we probably don't have time to get into today is it will be interesting if and when they sack Israel you then have so many male players in prominent positions in sport who are convicted convicted domestic violence offenders and who have gone on rampages and locked women and children in bathrooms and assaulted men, assaulted women, sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, all sorts of things and not just speculation, not just on Instagram, properly, properly injured people. So if they do draw the line here, which I think is fine, you know, I think his Instagram post was abhorrent and it also means I'm going to hell according <laughs> to, to him because, and I think most people are, um, but then it sort of becomes, I, I can see people's point that this is an interesting one because there are still some horrible, horrible men being allowed to to take the field. And if we're going to start to clean it up, that, that's great. That's fine. I'm I'm fine with that. But... I think then there's plenty other people who could be cleared out of the ranks as well. To and hey, if it's to protect the brand, then you know I'm I'm happy for that to be the reason that we use. I definitely agree with you, um, and I that's what I think is happening in sports. I think we're kind of getting to a point now where um, we saw it earlier this year with the NRL, where you know scandal comes up and they crack down as quickly as possible and kick people out. And I personally, I hope that's where we go from here with sport. I hope that when especially when domestic violence is involved obviously but when anything is involved i hope we get to a point now where we're not just letting it slide under the rug we're not just kind of giving them a slap on the wrist and then sending them back out there i do think maybe it's a bit of a dangerous territory if you're suggesting we can go backwards and start (laughs) kicking everybody out (laughs) there wouldn't be many players left um but yes i do think hopefully i would have said before this that we were moving into a place where we were starting to be Um, a lot more on top of this and then rugby Australia is kind of perhaps not moving like other codes are moving and I think that has been their mistake here. Up next, Mumbrella's Josie Tutty talks to Spinach's Ben Willey. And joining us on the Mumbrella cast this week, we have Ben Willey, General Manager and Media Director at Spinach, joining us all the way from Melbourne. Welcome, Ben. Thanks very much for having me, Josie. Thanks for Long jo- time listener, oh, first time guest. Great. Well, it's good to have someone from the Melbourne crowd in the office because, you know, we're based in Sydney, so I feel like sometimes we're a little bit Sydney-centric. <laughs> well, it's great to be up here in Sin City. <laughs> you had a little bit of a challenge getting here, didn't you? Oh, nothing I can't handle. Just a bit of airport shenanigans. (laughs) So maybe let's just start by talking a little bit about the Melbourne scene because you've obviously been based there for 
well, years pretty much, forever, right? Apart yeah. from my four years in the UK, oh, yep, yeah. I've been Melbourne-based the whole, my whole career. So from your perspective, how do you think the scene in Melbourne, more from maybe a creative agency side, but more just Adland in general, how do you think it sort of differs from the Sydney scene? Wow, what an opening question. Yeah. Um, look, it's it's much less transient as a city, mm-hmm. Melbourne is. So, uh, you know, I would use the word conservative. It's a bit more conservative. People move around less. There are less internationals coming in and out. So uh, relationships really matter in the Melbourne market. And uh, if you have poor relationships, you find it really difficult to mm-hmm. get things done. Great. Um, now, Spinnage is obviously a full service agency, which definitely feels like a bit of a trend at the moment. It's definitely something we've been talking about quite a bit on the podcast. Have you noticed it gaining popularity with clients over the past few years? Absolutely. Um, you know, we think it's a really essential part of what makes good comms these days. And we've been at it now for seven years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you, you know, we we firmly believe that Client, a lot of clients are in a really difficult situation where they're being pulled from pillar to post by different types of agencies who are in the middle of a turf war, they have uh, competing priorities, they have competing interests, and it's very difficult for a client to navigate through that. So when you're a full service agency, it's much easier for you to be impartial. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if you have one profit and loss report, it's much easier for you to do the right thing and do what's best for your clients. So I think... Um, from our point of view, we've actually noticed a lot of the big holding companies are now jumping onto this bandwagon, um, something we've been doing for seven years. But uh, really, from our point of view, it's not something you can do quickly and it's not something you can do easily. There is a misguided perception out there that you just put some media people and some creative people mm-hmm. and some digital people in a room together mm-hmm. and it's all beer and Skittles. And it's it's not like that at all. We've got a whole generation of people that have had their careers in an unbundled environment and it's very, very difficult for them to understand how the other side of the business works, mm. what makes someone good in that environment, and how to get the best out of them. So, you know, we are forever tweaking our processes, the way we approach things. And seven years down the track, we're still not as good at it as I'd like us to be. So uh, for people who are thinking about doing it tomorrow, uh, be, be advised. It's <laughs> a pretty serious commitment. And do you think it's a case of needing staff members who are able to cross all of those boundaries or is it more of a case of having the individual people with the individual skills but making them work better together or is it a blend of the two? It's really about having people who who care about what's happening in the bigger picture. Mm. So, um, you know, we have a bit of a saying internally that if a client came in and met a team that had a creative, a data person, a media person and a tech person, Initially, it would be difficult for that client to work out who's who because they're so close to each other. They really understand each other's role really, really well. So um, it, it's a combination. I mean, it's all our business is all about the people, but it's a combination of having the people and then having some people who are experienced enough to see things from a client point of view and not just say, well, I'm a media person. This is how that works in media land. You've got to think about all the other aspects that are going mm-hmm. on in a client's life. So what are some of the issues that the clients that come to you that have experienced that agency model face? I think what we're finding is is that a lot of clients' frustration is, is that their agencies are very channel focused. So if you're a digital agency, the answer is build a website or do a social media campaign, an ad. Um, and you know what clients want is they want people to take a step back and say, What's the business problem? How does that translate to a marketing problem? And how does that marketing problem translate into an advertising and or comms strategy? 
And it's only really from there you can be truly channel agnostic. And, you know, we have clients come to us uh, looking to make a radio ad and they leave with an EDM or vice versa Mm. because really uh, one of the things we think is really important is scratching the surface and saying, what business problem are we fixing? Mm-hmm. And is it almost a case of having to educate the client on what they need? Because as you just mentioned, they might not actually know what it is they need when they come to you. Oh, absolutely. And look, I think, you know, the clients we really enjoy working with come to us and say, here's the problem, not here's the solution. Mm. And, you know, it's very difficult when a client comes in and says, well, my answer to this problem is social ads. And we say, well, can we spend some time unravelling that problem and what does that really mm. mean? So. Uh, education is really a big part of what agencies should do um, and taking clients out of the comfort zone as well mm-hmm. and saying, well, have you thought about doing the same thing this way? There's also been a bit of a trend recently that I've noticed of PR agencies hiring staff members as creative directors and it feels like a lot of the agencies, even if they're calling themselves a PR agency or calling themselves a creative agency, are actually trying to blend a lot of the things just kind of naturally anyway. So is that something that you've noticed and do you think that that can sort of work as instead of being completely full service, you can sort of just start hiring a few people from the different areas into the agency. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people absolutely trying to broaden their remit because, mm. um, there's you know, we're going into a year that's going to be very, very tough for the ad market. And if you look at the trend in spend, uh, we're really seeing spend come off and I expect that the economy is going to be really tough. So what's happening is businesses are saying, well, to make the same margins and to make the same money, we need to offer additional services. And, it, you know, it seems natural in a workshop to say, okay, well, we're in this business, so we'll bolt something on. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of people are finding that much more difficult than what they mm-hmm. thought because back to my earlier point about getting people to really understand the other part of what that person does is really quite difficult and it takes experience and it takes a really different way of thinking about ads mm-hmm. and about comms problems. Definitely. Now, spinach is a part of WPP. Um, I just wanted to ask, how does uh, being part of a really big global holding group change the way that your agency operates, if at all? Yeah, look, it's it's a really good question. Uh, WPP AUNZ is a minority shareholder Mm -hmm. in spinach. Um, We've been an independent business. We're turning 20 this year. Um, So from our point of view, we, we believe it gives us the best of both worlds. So we can tap into the network for things that we think we need and things that our clients value and we can perhaps uh, stay away from the other things that mm-hmm. uh, we don't think add any value to our clients. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think the obvious one for us is training HR. You know, WPP have some fantastic processes in that area and, um, you, you know, we think training is a really important part of our uh, developing our people. So, you know, that's something we tap into a lot. Mm-hmm. And have you noticed WPP as a group? Obviously, there's been lots of mergers between a lot of agencies within WPP. Do you almost feel like they're having a bit of a shift towards this full service idea? Um, oh, certainly, there are times when they've been very interested in full service. And, you know, that it's, I don't think it's necessarily new. I mean, mm. WPP and STW before them often created bespoke client-centric um, options to win for pitches and they often were a full-service approach and, you know, a, a specialist agency just for that client. So it's been going for a while, but I certainly think um, there is certainly a trend in the comms industry and it's it's hard for me because I'm comparing our inside 
our outs- insides to their outside. So mm. I'm not that close to what they're doing. But mm-hmm. I certainly think that um, there's a lot of benefit for them to do that in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we talk about on the podcast quite a lot with all these sort of agency mergers is the branding of the agencies themselves can sometimes get a little lost when, you know, you've got all these old heritage brand names getting lost in these mergers you guys are called spinach which i think is just such a standout name like it's easily memorable you know it is a great brand do you agree with what we sometimes say on the podcast which is you know when you try and merge so many agencies and lose those strong brand names is that an issue for an agency well firstly thank you we we love the name spinach (laughs) too and there's a bit of a story behind that too um we were very clear, 20 years ago, the founding partners were very clear about the type of agency they didn't want to be. And our creative director, Frank Morabito, was sitting at his table and his eight-year-old daughter came in and said, what are you doing? And he explained that he was thinking of a name for his new agency. And like all good ECDs, he distilled the brief down into one sentence. And he said, you know, we exist to help our clients grow big and strong. And she turned to him and said, well, spinach makes you grow big and strong. Mm. And the rest is history. So, um, <laughs> you know, the business has changed a lot in that 20 years, but our our approach to what we do has always been focused on helping our clients grow big mm-hmm. and strong. And um, it doesn't matter if people come and go, uh, that brand name, and it's really great to work in an agency that, you know, values branding and isn't just a collection of letters from um, old people 100 years ago. <laughs> so do you think going back to the question, do you think, the, that is a bit of an issue then if if agencies are kind of always changing their names and quite often shifting from one to the other to another. It just becomes, you know, you almost lose that solid brand and everything it stands for in a way. Absolutely. And um, look, I, I agree with that sentiment entirely. Mm. Um, agencies are not the best at branding themselves, mm. which is the irony of it all. And, you know, when you merge brands together, you lose a lot of that heritage. And I think it was Sir Martin Sorrell that said something along the lines of, uh, businesses lose a lot of money by, uh, I can't remember the exact way he said it, but it was something along the lines of when you merge businesses together, you potentially lose a lot of brand value mm. just for the sake of convenience mm-hmm. and easy reporting lines. They're quite ironic that all the mergers have happened seemingly since he's been gone. But anyway, we'll leave that one there. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about data and technology because it seems like you guys do focus quite a lot on that side of your offering. So what are some of the kinds of problems that your clients are facing when it comes to data? Are they just honestly overwhelmed by how much data they have? Absolutely. Um, there is just, there's too much data out there at the mm. moment and people aren't sure how to use it. And another problem is that a lot of agencies are what we would call data myopic. So they tend to, to focus on the data that's in their particular area. And that's what we like to do as being a group of people who have a diverse skill set is to say, well, which of those diverse sets of data is really relevant here Mm -hmm. and which is important? We also use a a global tool called Domo, which is a data visualisation tool. So as much as possible, we seek to automate the collection and visualisation of that data. It's even got an app and we call the app the Argument Settler. So if someone's in a meeting, they can open up the app, they can open up one of the charts that's updated in real time and say, no, no, here's exactly what's Mm -hmm. happening. So being data-driven is is a really, really important thing in our business, but it's something that shouldn't come at the expense of creativity. Mm-hmm. So the real challenge is bringing those two things together and 
finding people who are creative and finding people who are data-centric and data-driven and putting them together with some actionable insights and Mm -hmm. getting a real result. And that's really, really exciting to me because if we have a great strategy at the top and a great creative idea and a theme and a tone, and then if we can help our people at all levels um, translate that down into the 8 million different channels we push ads out (laughs) in at the moment, um, that's really exciting. And certainly from the creative's point of view, uh, having context of where that ad is going whether the person's being retargeted, where they are in the in the purchase cycle, all of those factors make a creative's job much easier um, and they make it much more interesting for them. So that's a big part of what we do and mm-hmm. something the team really, really enjoys. This might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but are there any examples of work that either you guys have done or that you've seen that have really combined those two sides of the data and the creativity really well? Um, I think, look, it's it's a really good question and I'm not going to answer on behalf of any of our clients because I probably would have should have got that cleared beforehand. <laughs> but um, I think the one that's really interesting to me is the Qantas and Brand Australia data tie-up. Mm-hmm. So as a consumer who's thinking about coming to Australia, you get a completely different set of messages to once you've actually booked your flight. And I think we're going to see a lot more of those sort of data sharing opportunities in the future. Uh, between brands who have a a shared interest and brands who have a lot of information about their customers that can be really valuable. So something that's kind of in the data space and is a bit of a hot topic right now is mass personalization. Could you maybe just explain how you guys are tackling that? Because I know it's quite a big, complicated sometimes area. (laughs) No worries. Look, it's, it's really interesting to us, mass personalization. And firstly, you've got two words that mean the complete opposite put together. Mm. So when we talk about mass personalization at spinach, what we mean is personalization of messages at scale. So we're talking, we're not um, suggesting that mass personalization is going to replace what advertisers would call top of the funnel brand type messages that, you know, have longer term value and go out in in larger reaching mediums. Mm. What we're talking about is really mid-funnel and bottom-of-the-funnel communications being personalised to groups of people depending on where they are in the advertising journey. And, uh, you know, we see it as making an, a significant difference to clients' businesses, and that's what we're here for, to sell more stuff, right? And one of the routes to doing that is having messages that are more relevant to people because we all want we all want personalisation to a degree. And I think we've seen that trend start with media companies, Um, And I think probably the Netflix and the Amazons of the world are the best at it. You watch this, you will like more of this, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what what we're doing is, as a business, is saying, where does someone fit? What happens if we send, let's say I'm a retailer um, and I've got a dog and, you know, the retailer knows that I've bought dog food and they know that, you know, the life cycle of that dog food might be a week, it might be two And in a week, they send me a replenishment email that says your dog food's about to run out. Um, From that point, I don't open the email because I'm busy. Well, we've knitted two devices together, but that night I get on Facebook on my tablet and they can give me that same message. Mm. So it's everything from very specific type replenishment type um, messages all the way through to uh, messages that reach a really big group of people. Um, And what we're learning is, is that the return on investment from that sort of advertising is much stronger than it is when it's really generic, mm-hmm. especially in the digital or in the online environment. 
So that's interesting and exciting to us. Um, and w- what it's doing is, is giving us an opportunity to sort of crawl, walk, run, fly. And I would say there are very few people, I'd say there's probably nobody who's at fly at the moment, mm. but we're learning more and more about automation and orchestration. And that's going to be the future of our business. You know, when mm. I started in media, albeit 20 years ago, um, you know, we used to buy ads and Sunday night movies, pat ourselves on the back and go to the pub. <laughs> and I often say to, the, to some of the tech people in the office, well, you just get the computers to do your job and so you can go to the pub early. <laughs> um, but uh, look, really what we're seeing is certainly in the digital environment, um, computers are far better at buying advertising space than humans are. Mm-hmm. And I get that programmatic's been a bit of a hot topic and perhaps yeah. a bit of a dirty word. Um, but certainly from our point of view, if you've got a, um, a demand-side platform, i.e. a computer that buys advertising space, and it can take into account 200 variables that might impact someone buying and then adjust its price to bid for that inventory based on those variables, that's a fantastic outcome. Mm-hmm. And we know for a fact that our um, cost per acquisition, our cost per leads are falling at a rapid rate because those computers can handle 200 variables and, you know, my tiny mind can only handle six. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a fantastic and exciting part of our business that we learn something new every day and that to me is, um, is really exciting. And why do you think we aren't there yet? Is it simply that the technology is in its infancy because, you know, I go online and I get retargeted ads but they're never – they're either too shouty they're not very sophisticated is what I'm trying to say and what you're describing sounds very sophisticated so why aren't we there yet as an industry oh look it's uh but there's a long way to go Mm. and there's a lot of tech that needs to come together to do it and it's not easy and I I couldn't agree with you more is there anything more frustrating than being wildly retargeted by a product you've just bought um it just it really ruins that that um, that purchase and the joy that should go mm. with that purchase. So, um, yeah, absolutely. What we're trying to do is automate as much of that po- as possible and learn as much as possible so we can reduce that and stop pissing off customers and wasting our clients' mm-hmm. money. Okay, great. I think that's a good place to end it there. So thank you very much for joining us, Ben. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Mumbrella's Publish Conference has launched alongside the opportunity to enter one of my favourite awards nights of the year, the Publish Awards. Now, the entry deadline isn't until June, but why not buck the trend and get in early? Imagine beating a deadline. What fun that would be. That is, of course, pure speculation on my part. I have literally never beaten a deadline. But I can only imagine it would be very fulfilling. So head to mumbrella.com.au slash publish awards for all the criteria and entry details. That's it for this week, though. Thank you for listening and thank you to my tiny team. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye.